Well, today we're going to wrap up this little series we've been in the last few weeks that Pastor Sam and Matt have helped with on the book of Psalms. And so you can open up to Psalm 131. I think it's going to be a very appropriate psalm for this time of year because we're right in the middle now between Thanksgiving and Christmas, two of the really the paramount holidays in the American culture. I mean, I love Thanksgiving. There's so many things about Thanksgiving I love. Obviously, I love the food. You know, I, I love turkey. I love pumpkin pie, pumpkin anything. I love, I love football. But most of all, I love just getting together with friends and family and, uh, and having those moments of just peacefulness together. It's hard to commercialize Thanksgiving, but the day after Thanksgiving, things change. And we gear up for another holiday, which is very big in our culture, called Christmas. And the two holidays have a lot in common, the joyous celebrations, lots of great food, family gatherings, but they differ in some significant ways. We don't have Thanksgiving songs, do we? I mean, I can't think of a song that you put on the radio or start to sing in regards to Thanksgiving, but we do with Christmas, all kinds of songs, great songs, um, spiritual songs, secular songs, but there's this great music that goes with Christmas. Uh, Christmas has a lot of characters, from Rudolph to Santa Claus and elves and all that. Thanksgiving just basically has one. And he's the turkey. And, and he's not cute and cuddly because we eat him. So they're very different, very different holidays. But I think the biggest contrast is in how we, how we look at those two holidays and what they symbolize in the heart. For example, Thanksgiving is a day that I think that all of us pause and say thank you. We, we, we show gratitude to God for what he's done for us. Or we're just grateful for the blessings we've received. But ironically, the very next day, we say yeah, we're blessed, but we could be blessed more. And so we need all these other things that are coming with Christmas to really feel blessed. And there's this contradiction of, yes, I'm satisfied, I'm full, I'm stuffed, I'm good, but I need more. And there's this frantic pace that goes on during the Christmas season that sometimes causes us who are believers to to have mixed feelings. Like I sometimes have a hard time with Christmas because it's so commercialized. It's... it does things to us that I don't like. For example, we're so frantically busy. We're running to events and celebrations and parties and all these things. We're so busy during the whole month of December. Uh, during the month of December, there's a lot of pressure. There's, a, there's pressure to dress certain ways, to look cool, to have the, have the, the outfits. It's, there's pressure to decorate your house and make it look like something that came out of a Pinterest um, uh, screen on your, on your computer. I mean, we've got to make things look really beautiful in our houses. And we're, we're, there's a lot of focus on entertaining other people, and there's pressure. But the biggest pressure comes with the gifts. I mean, getting the right gifts and spending a lot of time and a lot of money and going to debt to, to show other people we love them. And you, you, after Christmas, you step back and go, did I really need to do all that? I mean, why does Christmas feel so bad at times? Why does Christmas bring out a, a feeling in me that I can't wait till it's over? And put all this stuff away and pack up and get back to life as normal. It shouldn't be that way, but that's what happens with Christmas. And that's why I think this psalm, Psalm 131, has a message for us in the midst of this craziness of the holiday season. And so uh, follow along with me. It's a very short psalm. It's only three verses. It's one of the psalms of ascent. If you remember the very first psalm we looked at was Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house, that whole psalm. These are psalms that the Israelites would recite on their way up to Jerusalem. And because they focus on some very central themes that they needed to remember through their lives, they wanted to pass on to their kids. And this is one of them. It's just three verses. It goes like this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. 
but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What this psalm speaks of is the satisfied soul. A soul that's at rest with God. A soul that, that is at peace. Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher of the last century, said that though this is the shortest of the psalms, it, it sometimes takes the longest to implement in your life. It takes a lifetime to learn the truth of this passage. But if we could master the theme of this passage... I believe that we would experience something within our hearts that would give us a a joy and satisfaction that lasts and carry us through every season of our lives. And so if I could summarize the theme of this um, psalm in one statement, it would be this. God is most satisfied in me when I am most satisfied in him. God is most satisfied in me when I am most satisfied in him. See, here's the secret. Somehow this has got miscommunicated, that God is difficult to please, that somehow, if we really want to make God happy, it's going to require a lot of effort on your part, a lot of obedience on your part, a lot of, a lot of effort to get to the place where God can actually say, hey, I'm pretty happy with you. But, but I want to strip all that aside and just say this. You know how you, want to, how you can make God really happy? Find your ultimate happiness in Him. If you are ultimately satisfied in Him, He is fully satisfied with you. And that is the goal of the Christian life, to find our satisfaction in Him. And there are three um, practices or disciplines that I think arise out of this passage that I think we need to put into our lives, not only to achieve that place of satisfaction, but to maintain it. And the first one is this, to embrace contemplation, to embrace contemplation. He starts off saying, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He's looking inward. He's looking in at his heart. He's looking in at his, his thoughts, his eyes, what's happening there. And really, this is a statement of saying, I, I don't want to become proud. I don't want to become arrogant and lift my eyes higher than they should be. I don't want to think more of myself than I should. I don't want to act like I know it all. See, I'm just a little piece in this bigger story that God has going on in this world. And I recognize that, and I pause and acknowledge that in my life. I don't want to get caught up in things that are, that are too great. In fact, what God is doing, I don't fully understand, but I, can, but I know this to be true. It is marvelous. It is good. It is, it is amazing. And I get to be a little piece of that. And so he takes this look inside at his heart. He, he recognizes what's going on inside there. And I think that's a place we're often afraid to go. We're afraid to look at our hearts and what's going on inside because everything flows from the heart. The thoughts, the, the attitudes we, we adopt, ultimately the actions that we perform, they all flow from the heart. The Bible says the heart is the fountainhead of everything else. Listen to this passage from Proverbs. Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. It is if, is it, it's as if your heart is the source of everything else that takes place in you. And through you. So take note of what's going on inside because a lot of times you will do things or say things, and if you're like me, you catch yourself going, Whoa, 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 where'd that come from? Well, how did I say that? You know, where'd, how'd that come out of my mouth? Or why did I react that way to that situation? That's not me. The truth is, it is you. You've just been able to mask it and keep it down in your heart, but deep down there's unsettledness in there. There's stuff that's in your heart, and it's wise for us to pay attention to what's in our heart. 
because out of that's going to flow everything else. And David is saying, hey, I've ta- I'm taking note of what's going on in my heart. And I know that sometimes things aren't good. I think it was Socrates who said the unexamined life is not worth living. In other words, if you're not willing to take a look inside to know where the source is for why you do the things you do, why you think the things you think, then, then why bother? You, you need to get in touch with yourself. You need to understand that many of the things that, that come out of you come out of the unsettledness that's within your heart. Maybe it's from hurts. Maybe it's from discouragements. Maybe it's from pain, un, unsolved things within you that are starting to bubble up in the words that come out of your mouth or the actions. He says, take a look deep inside. But don't be afraid of it. You're going to find dark things there. But what David did was he goes on to the very next verse and he says, but I quieted my soul. I calmed my soul, meaning I know things were unsettled there, but then I took responsibility for what was going on in my own soul and I calmed it. Now, this may sound kind of weird, but David is talking to himself. You ever do that? You ever talk to yourself? I've done that. Especially when I've done bad things or dumb things. I've scolded myself and, and, and said things like, you idiot. Why did you do that? You knew better than that. Why did you say that? Why did you buy that thing? Come on. And I beat myself up for it. And sometimes you can beat yourself up for maybe a rejection in life. Well, nobody loves me. I'm so unlovable. I'm a loser. I'm a failure. And we do this negative self-talk. But even, even our secular culture acknowledges the fact that, that there is a place in our life for positive self-talk. Now, they've actually stolen this from Scripture because Scripture doesn't call it self-talk. It calls it soul talk. And the difference is we don't just pump ourselves up with, with things that we pulled out of the air in our culture. We build ourselves up on the truths of, of what God says about us and about life and about himself. And that's what David does. There's a time in David's life, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, where he's very distressed, but he encouraged himself in the Lord. He encouraged himself in the Lord. How did he do that? Well, he kind of talked himself up. He reminded him who God is. He reminded him what God could do. And he found encouragement in that. And we see that in the Psalms. For example, in Psalm 42 and 43, he says a number of times, Oh, my soul, why are you so downcast? And then he answers his soul by saying this, put your hope in God. Who's he talking to? His own soul. Why are you downcast? Come on, guy. Put your hope in God. He's talking to himself because he's, he's doing soul talk. There are other times where David does soul talk. We see it in Psalm 102 and 103 where he says, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is within me. Bless him. My soul, you should bless the Lord. Forget not his benefits. See, one of the lies of our culture is when you find darkness within you, that's just, that's the way it's always going to be. It's stuck there. And David is saying, no, no, I, I calmed my soul. I quieted what was going on. The, the, the tumult within me, I calmed because I spoke to myself. And sometimes it's very important for us to remind our own soul who God is and what God can do. I, I just had that happen recently. We were in Thailand for a couple weeks, one week of working with some missionaries and a few days of personal vacation time. And for vacation, we were going to go from Chiang Mai, Thailand, down to an area called Phuket. And in order to get there, we had to um, buy these cheap airline tickets to, to fly a domestic flight down there. But what we didn't realize when we booked the flight is those little domestic flights don't have a lot of room for baggage. When you fly internationally, you can take two, two big bags 
plus carry-ons. Your bags can weigh 50 pounds. So we packed our bags with shoes and clothes and things to take to the missionaries. But, but now we were traveling from this, this one location to another, and we were overweight. And they charged significantly for every kilogram you were overweight, $10 a kilogram. And they not only charge it for the flight, they charge it for the flight to the stop in between, so we'd have to pay it twice. And we discovered that we were going to have to pay $400 to take our bags with us. And, you know, we were so frustrated with it. And uh, my wife was in, just to the point of tears, saying, I can't believe this. I mean, we got these cheap tickets, but now it's going to cost $400. I wonder if we should just leave our bags here. I mean, for $400, we could buy new clothes. So we seriously considered that. And then I remembered something I've learned a long time ago. It took me a while to get this. But I've learned three little words that I say to myself in times like this. It's just money. It's just money. Now, that sounds trite, I know. But it really is a significant thing. Because um, every time that we've had like a surprise car repair or medical bill come up or something where it just seems like this big financial hit, Part of me gets worked up over it. There's time where I had these stitches put in my head and chin at, a, at an urgent care, and they billed us $7,000. And I was so furious about it. $7,000 for, for eight stitches. I would have gone without the stitches. <laughs> and then I just reminded myself, it's just money. Because I watched the fires in California, and I watched hurricanes, and I realized there's some things that are irreplaceable. You can't replace time that's lost. And people... Who you lose can't be replaced, but money can. God can provide more money. It might be through a gift. It might be through extra work, but but you can make more money. And so when those things come up now that are financial in nature, I just remind myself, it's just money. Because if God promised to provide for my needs, even though I have a $7,000 medical bill or $400 travel bill, is my God able to meet that need? I have to say, yeah, he said he'd meet my needs. Okay. Maybe I don't have it right now, but he's going to provide it. And I just have to trust that he'll do that. And by the way, we ended up, God opened up some doors, and we paid a a lot less. It was like $60 to get our bags shipped. It was a long story. I can't go into it here. But God opened up some doors, and it cost us a lot less than we expected. But the point is this. Sometimes you have to remind your soul, hey, don't get all worked up. Sometimes you need to tell your soul something like this. Hey, God's got this. I know it's big, it's messy, it's hairy. God's got this. Or just you remind yourself sometimes, hey, I know without a shadow of a doubt that God still loves me. Sometimes you need to remind yourself, hey, this is a tough thing, but I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Okay, I can do this. I can take this on. I'm not by myself in this. God promises never to leave me or forsake me. So soul, you're not by yourself here. He's not abandoned you. He's not ignored you. So sometimes when you take a look inside, you'll discover something you don't like. That's okay, because that's the time then you can quiet and calm your soul. Embrace contemplation. Secondly, embrace contentment. Embrace contentment. He says, but I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This, this idea of being like a weaned child a child, a child that's born naturally has this dependency on its mother. 
And so God has uh, given mothers this incredible ability to produce within herself all the child needs for nourishment for the first months, maybe the first couple of years of the child's life. It's incredible. It's not only the nourishment, but the uh, immunity that the child needs is provided through its mother. It becomes very connected to its mother. But there comes this time where the child has to be weaned from its mother. It must learn to eat solid food. It must learn to, to mature. And, and I didn't know this, but the process of, of eating and, and uh, processing solid food is also necessary for our speech development. And so if a child wants to mature physically, emotionally, and I would say even socially, it has to be weaned from its mother. But that's a difficult process. I know I'm not a mom. I've never gone through that, but I've watched mothers. I've watched mothers who are very connected to their infant. And, and they love their little one. And every time that little one cries, they're right there for them. But now there comes a point where the mother says, I can't be there every time you cry. In fact, I'm going to have to watch you cry as we separate and create a little bit of, of distance. Not that I want to be distant from you, but I want you to grow up. And it's part of your growing up process. You know what's so funny is to watch um, parents of newborns at our nursery. Because uh, they'll, they'll be very protective of their kids for many, many months and then decide now it's time to take our kids to the nursery. So the first time they go, they drop off their little one and the little one starts crying and goes, yeah, mommy, mommy. and they have to say, no, not this time. I can't pick you up. I mean, daddy have to go. You're going to be okay. I won't be okay. And they're just screaming and crying and it breaks your heart. And so the parents leave, but you know what they do? They walk out the door and they go over to the window. It's a one-way window where you actually can watch the kids and they can't see you and they're watching the little one and they agonize over that separation. This is hard on the parents too. They're watching their little one cry and they want to rescue them, but at the same time, they know they can't. This is part of the growing up process. And so David's describing this place in life where I've been weaned. But I'm wondering, what is he being weaned from? What's David referring to? I think there are two, two options. Number one is maybe he's referring to being weaned from the things of the world. See, when you grow up, there are a lot of things about the world that you like and that just feel like they're part of life, you know, um, having the approval of other people, you know, achieving and being honored for achievement. And we've learned to depend on the comforts of our culture, and those just become just standard things. In fact, we start to wonder, like, I don't know how I could ever live without these things. And yet, as you grow in your relationship with the Lord, you get separated from those. And God begins to pull you away, helping you to realize, hey, those things that are good that I've given you, I I don't want you to cling to those so much. I don't want you to feel desperately dependent on them. Okay? I don't want you, I want you to like the things I give you. I don't want you to cling to those things. And so he begins to cause us to be separated from those things. And that's a good thing. It's hard, but it's good. See, some of us wonder, like, oh, I don't know how I could ever be a missionary and go to another place. Where I'd have to give up my, like my, my internet. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, like, like that's essential for life. But it is for some of us. Like, I've had people say, like, I don't know how someone could go sell all their possessions and go and, and live in a third world country. But people do that, and they do it out of joy. And the reason we can't is because we're immature. We've become so desperately dependent on those things of the world, of the culture, 
But when you're weaned from those, which is one of the reasons I like to travel to other cultures, is I get weaned from the TV, from sports, and from all these other things for a period of time, and I realize there's a lot of life to enjoy apart from the things that I've become so dependent on. But maybe, maybe David's speaking uh, of not worldly things, but actually good things that God gives us in our relationship with him. And like a baby who is nurtured by its mother, there comes a time where God says, okay, that was for you for your early stages of spiritual growth, but now I'm going to pull that back. Just like a mother says, okay, I've given you milk for, for these months and maybe first couple years, but I'm going to start to wean you from that. See, there's a passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, where the writer actually chastises the reader saying, you know, you guys have been following the Lord for so long, and you guys are such babies because you still need spiritual milk when you should be eating meat. You should be on to greater things, bigger things, higher truths of the faith, but you're back still at the very basic things. You need to grow up. And see, when you, when you have a baby in the house, the baby gets a lot of grace. The baby gets a lot of attention. I mean, this happened in our house yesterday. Our grandson um, gets his diaper changed, and a fountain shoots off. <laughs> so it goes across the room, and it's cute. It's not cute when it's a 10-year-old doing that, okay? The 10-year-old does that in your living room. It is not cute at all. In fact, he gets disciplined for it because you treat a, an older child different than an than a infant, you give that infant extra grace, and they cry, and you respond, and you love it. And, and, but when you get kids who are older, and they've been weaned from all that, and when they're not so dependent on you for everything, here's what's really beautiful. When that child who's a teenager or a young adult says, I want to be with you. I want to, I want to spend time with you. That's a beautiful thing. An infant has no choice. They have to. They have, they'll die if they don't cling to you. But the older child who's, who's now been weaned, has some independence, now can choose to be with you. And that's a beautiful thing. God wants us to, to go through that weaning process and say, I still, I just love being with you. See, in those early stages when God keeps pouring out extra grace and favor, what if this happens? Now, I don't know if it happens exactly like this, but what if God says, okay, now, now that you've been in the Lord for a little bit of time, I'm going to wean you from some of those things I've given you to get you started. What if there comes times where, as a young believer, you start crying out to God, and you start reaching up to Him, and you say, God, where are you? Pick me up. Help me, God. And God says, I can't right now. I can't. I'm going to step back and watch you through the window, because I've got to watch you cry and wail for me, because you need to grow up. And I need to have you go through this painful time, because if you don't, you won't mature. And maybe sometimes you go through those times of life when you think God is a million miles away and God says, no, I'm not. I'm watching you through the window with love but because I want you to mature. I don't want you to stay perpetually a spiritual baby. And you need to know this about the Lord. You can count on this to be true. He is always loving toward you, always. Even when it doesn't feel like it, he's always loving to you. It doesn't feel loving when a mother says, honey, I can't pick you up right now. I can't nurse you right now. I've got to watch you cry. I've got to watch you agonize over this. And though there are tears in your eyes, I have to say no for this moment because I want something greater for you. I want maturity in your faith. And so David has reached this place where he says, I've been through that weaning process. 
And I just, I'm at peace with God. I'm content with him. That's what he's expressing here, this contentment with the Lord. And uh, it's so beautiful to go through scripture and read other places. Like Paul. Paul says, you know, I know what it's like to live in plenty. And I know what it's like to be in, in need. But in Psalm 411, he says this. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. But God's, God hasn't changed. You know, when I have all these blessings coming in and I'm living in a comfortable life and it's lush and prosperous, God is good. God is good. But then when I'm over here and things are tough and lean and hard, God is still good. God didn't change. My circumstances did, but God didn't. And that, that's what Paul discovered. See, here's the secret. Contentment in either situation. It's a heart that's satisfied saying, I'm good with God. No matter what happens, no matter what the... My contentment isn't based on my circumstances. My contentment is based on my relationship with my God. So when you're in that place, all of a sudden other scriptures make a lot of sense. Like Psalm 1611 where David wrote, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God, being close to you, that's where it's at. That's where I find the greatest joy. I've shared this passage with you many, many times. It's one of my all-time favorites in all the Psalms. A man named Asaph wrote this. He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that the voice of a satisfied soul? God, you gave me yourself. I'm, I'm content with that. See, everything else that you find joy in in life, your marriage, your dating relationship, your kids, your grandkids, your job, your health, your entertainment, your possessions, all those things, God says enjoy those things. But put them at a lower level. Don't, don't put them in place of me because I am the source of all those things. I am the source of all joy. And if you have me, you could take away any of those things and still have joy. But see, the problem is we start elevating those other things up and say, I can't have joy unless you have God and these other things. And David say, no, no, no. It's just joy in the Lord. Everything else is like an added blessing to it. So find that satisfaction in the Lord. I think there's been a misconception that Christians have to be intentionally miserable people. Like, like we actually have to inflict our uh, punishment on ourselves so we don't have too much fun and we have to deprive ourselves of all these pleasures because, after all, our ultimate pleasure is in heaven. So we're going to inflict pain on ourselves and discomfort so that one day we can ultimately be happy in heaven. But I think that's wrong. I think, I think what the Bible is teaching us is this. I want to show you where true happiness comes from on earth. And once you get this, you continue it through eternity. See, if you can find joy in your relationship with God right now, if you find your supreme joy in God right now, just God, that will continue forever. So it isn't that we're diminishing joy on earth. No, no, no. We're actually maximizing joy on earth. But we're just maximizing in the right place. I want to have this incredible joy in the Lord that just I can't stop singing about it, I can't stop talking about it, I can't stop feeling it. And that joy then will carry. It's really bringing heaven to my experience on earth. So God's not anti-joy, 
God's into the best joy you could possibly have because that's found in the Lord. So, so embrace contentment in your relationship with the Lord. As another psalm says, delight yourself in the Lord. And then embrace confidence. The, the third verse says, um, David summarizes what he's learned, and now he's telling the whole nation, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. It's as if he said, you know what, here's, here's what I've learned, and it's not just good for me, it's good for you. It's good for everybody. Embrace this confidence because God wants to give you lasting pleasure. Israel, hope in the Lord. See, if I were to write a psalm, and I would just replace that saying, oh, Pikes Peak Christian. (laughs) Hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Because if you have hope, it can carry you through anything. Hope is what keeps us waking up in the morning. It keeps us living. If you lose hope, you do crazy things. You do, you do dumb things. You do hurtful things. But if you have hope, you can endure anything. And David says, hope in the Lord. Good is coming. Even if you don't see it yet, good is coming in your relationship with the Lord because God is good. Embrace that confidence that we have. You know, I was, I was 16 years old when I gave my life to Christ. And the Lord came into my life and filled a void that only he could fill. And I've never regretted that situation. There have been times where I've maybe floundered in my Christian walk, but I've never turned away from it. And I look back in hindsight saying, the only regret I have is I didn't do it earlier. And I would agree with David. David says this in another psalm, Psalm 71.5. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. From my youth meaning you've passed the test of time. It was way back then, and I find it true today. You are a God worth hoping in. And then David writes this in Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. Speaking of God, his delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Now get this. It says right there in the middle of this, the Lord takes pleasure in this, those who fear him and hope in his steadfast love. The Lord takes pleasure. I mean, get your head wrapped around this. This is something that makes God smile, makes God feel good. What is it? When we hope and trust in him, when we fear him, we revere him as our God. God is most pleased in us when we are most pleased with him. And if you find your greatest satisfaction in God, you bring great satisfaction to God. That's what he's looking for in us. This satisfaction that we can have in him. So how can I be more satisfied in the Lord? How can I grow in that? Well, I want to recommend, starting today, three practices. If you're not doing these already, these would be good to implement. First of all, value solitude is essential for your spiritual health. Value solitude. See, our culture doesn't value solitude. In fact, one of the things that disturbed me on my trip, many things blessed me. I, I was so blessed by the courtesy of Asian people. I mean, even on the roads, I mean, it's crazy. You may have lines on the road, but they don't mean anything. Cars and and scooters are just zigzagging in between traffic lanes. And yet we didn't see a single accident because everyone just knew how to maneuver with one another, even inches away from each other. It was amazing. In our culture, we would have been laying on the horn. We would have sped up so somebody couldn't come in. And we're very, I I just came away feeling like we are such a rude culture compared to other cultures. And people would do this after, you, uh, after they served you, would, 
would kind of bow before you to thank you. I said, we never do this in our culture. We're above that. And that's a shame. I admire that about the culture. But one of the things that I, that I saw in the Asian culture that disturbed me was everywhere we went, people were glued to their cell phones. I mean, you go to a restaurant and there'd be, there'd be eight or ten people around a table and everyone's got their face in their phone, taking pictures of the food, texting people. And I thought, enjoy one another. Come on, talk to each other. And they're busy just doing stuff with their phones. And see, we are so addicted to technology, we don't know what it's like to have solitude. And I just want to recommend, maybe what you need to do is shut the noise off in your life for a while. Get in your car and don't turn on the radio. Just keep it quiet. Don't be afraid of the silence. Solitude is good. It's a time when we can look inside. Be, be comfortable with yourself. There are times you should just turn off the TV, turn off the, the um, Spotify, stop checking your texts and your, and your Facebook page and just say, hey, I'm just going to leave that aside for right now. I need this time to look at myself, to be alone. I mean, Jesus would get away into the hills to have this time of solitude. We need it too. Henri Nouwen, who was a Catholic um, priest, a writer, theologian, wrote in a book called The Way of the Heart of his own practice of developing solitude. And he writes this, As soon as I decide to stay in my solitude, confusing ideas, disturbing images, wild fantasies, and weird associations jump about in my mind like monkeys in a banana tree. <laughs> See, when you try to get still, there's all this weird stuff going on in your head. Anger and greed begin to show their ugly faces. The task is to persevere in my solitude, to stay in my cell until all my seductive visitors get tired of pounding on my door and they leave me alone. Sometimes it's just good to do nothing for a while and let God empty out what's in there. I, I journal. I have, a, I have a little book that I journal in uh, quite often because it's my way of emptying my heart, of getting in touch with what's going on within me. And I love those times of just quietness in the house, dog by my foot, cup of coffee, and I'm getting in touch with myself. Make time for that. See, one of the, one of the flaws in our culture that we, we have seen silence as punishment. When you want to discipline a kid, go to your room where you're away from everybody else and where it's silent. Uh, you have people put in prison in isolation cells as punishment. And so we almost feel like, man, if I'm alone, if I'm by myself, if there's not noise and and something around me, then I'm being punished. But no, it's a blessing at times just to be by yourself. Secondly, resist the urge for more of the world. See, there's a, there's a voice that comes, and you see it already on the TV. You could be really happy if you had this. And it's just this constant bombardment of more stuff, more stuff, latest, fastest, best, prettiest, you know, all these things. You need more. You're not, you're not content with what you have. And at some point, you just have to shut those voices off and say, no, I don't need that to be happy. I don't need that to be satisfied in my life. I'm okay right where I am. I'm good. I'm good right now. And see, that would, that would be such a great thing going into the holiday season as you think about how much more stuff to buy. Really, be wise about it. Is one more piece of technology, one more article of clothing. Now, I'm not opposed to gifts. I think gifts are wonderful expressions of love. But don't feel like you've got to keep up with everything because that, those voices will continue to be there the rest of your life. Sometimes you have to say, hey, enough, enough's enough. We're good with what we have. 
And then finally, quiet your soul and know this truth, that He is God. It's actually another psalm. Be still and know that He is God. Know. Not just believe it. Absolutely be convinced of it. Know it by experience. Yep, He's God. He's proved Himself again and again who He is.